morning, and welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, we are continuing our series in First Peter for the summer, um, and last week in our study in First Peter, we reflected on what it meant to have living hope in the resurrected Lord, through whom we've been born again, uh, and we sort of reveled in uh, that beautiful passage at the very beginning of First Peter. And I ended the reading of the portion of Scripture uh, in verse, we, we looked at verses 3 to 5, but I ended with the very beginning of verse 6. I don't know if you remember that. I just read it. Uh, it wasn't printed for you in the bulletin, but it said, in this you rejoice. Um, it's a declaration. In this, this glorious hope of salvation through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, for that salvation that is kept in heaven, ready to be revealed, we rejoice. Uh, The sure hope of salvation through our living Lord causes joy. But these words here in verse 6, the beginning of verse 6, are a foil for what Peter's about to say. Because he says, but in just a moment, and for a little while, uh, you're going to suffer. We have this great joy, but there is suffering. He brings us to the height of glory. He points out to us the power of God and regeneration, resurrection, sanctification, preservation. But in the blink of an eye, he brings us to the lowest of lows, trials and suffering. And so that's where we are turning our attention to this morning. Many of the hymns we sang, scriptures we read in this passage or in this uh, bulletin uh, revolved around around that. So I'm going to go ahead and read verses 3 to 9. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 6 to 9, um, but they, they go hand in hand. The glories of Christ and our salvation and the lows, the challenges and trials of our life. So hear God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to see you more clearly, even through the darkest of trials and tribulations. Lord, we ask that you would show us yourself, that you would reveal to us the glories of heaven and the hope of Christ yeah, even in the midst of the sorrow and tears that we face. And so we ask that we would understand that principle here in our text. Uh, enliven our hearts to the gospel. 
Give us hope. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in his published journal exploring the grief he experienced after the death of his wife, Joy, which is entitled A Grief Observed, said, We were promised sufferings. Scripture promises us sufferings. We see that here in the text. But C.S. Lewis says, We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, Blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it. And I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. And he goes on and he says, Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself and not to others. In reality, not in imagination. It's a different thing to know suffering personally, isn't it? Grief and sorrow in some way cannot be known in theory. Sure, we can talk about it. We can maybe even sort of theorize about the nature of grief and the, you know, the sort of process of grief and everything. But grief, sorrow, cannot be known in theory. The death of a loved one, the loss of a job, the breakdown of a marriage or a friendship, the pain of being sinned against, the deep loneliness that attends to us, persecution or rejection. These are just a few of the myriad of things in life through which we come to know grief and sorrow. And when we become acquainted with it, it is an extraordinarily difficult thing to make sense of, isn't it? When you, when you get acquainted with grief and sorrow, you, in the midst of it, it's almost impossible to get perspective, to understand it. We feel forlorn by God. We often find ourselves crying out with the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the perennial question arises, If God is good, why did he allow this pain and suffering? And there are no easy answers to this question. But First Peter Verses 6 to 9 argues for a purpose of suffering in the life of the believer. He does. And this morning, I want to explore it. Peter makes a startlingly bold claim that the grief and the trials that we face as Christians are the cause of glory and honor and praise. The pain, the suffering, the trial that we face in this life as a believer is part of the glory and praise and honor of God. And not only that, but that even in them, even in the midst of them, the text says that we have a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Charlie Brown had that phrase, you know, and he said it in exasperation, right? You probably think of it. Good grief. Right? Maybe you say that in exasperation. I don't know. That's an old, an old term. It's a funny thing to put those two words together, good and grief. How do those things go hand in hand? Good grief. But that's exactly what the Apostle Peter is saying. There is good grief. 
It's a bold claim. God gives you good grief. Is that possible? Is there such a thing? And what do you mean by good, Rob? Because the grief I've experienced has nothing to do with good feelings. It has to do with pain and sorrow and heartache. Hopefully this morning we will answer some of these questions as we see how God gives us good grief. First thing I want to look at is that grief is necessary. Grief is necessary. Our verse... Verse 6 begins with that transitional statement that I've already highlighted. As Peter reflects on the glories of salvation that he's unfolded in the first few verses, he says, in this you rejoice. And this is the foundation for what he is about to say concerning trials. All that stuff at the beginning is foundational to understanding the purpose of grief. If we don't have that vision in mind, that picture of the glories of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will, we will not understand the grief and pain that we face. As we begin to examine pain and sorrow, we, mean, we need not lose sight. We must not lose sight of that horizon of hope that I've described earlier. Right? Don't lose sight of that. Um, last week I used that illustration of being in a boat, uh, in, uh, being on a boat in the fog. And when we can't see the horizon, we become disoriented and lost. And I believe that that Peter's point here is to look to keep that vision in front of us first. Because there's no greater fog in life than suffering and pain and sorrow. In this you rejoice. In what? In our being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is the horizon. In this you rejoice. And the better question is actually not in what do you rejoice, but in whom do you rejoice? Because all of that has to do with the resurrected Lord. That living hope is Christ himself. Fix your eyes on Jesus as we delve into the depths, into the valley. But Peter shifts from the glories here of salvation to the gory mess of life. He says, though now for a little while, if necessary. Pain and hardship seem interminable, don't they, in the midst of them. When, you, when you're going through something, uh, the end is never in sight. <laughs> it just doesn't feel that way. But Peter, he puts our trials into perspective. He says, for a little while. He's just been extolling that, that glorious hope of salvation that's ready to be revealed and what he's saying is it's, it's not as far off as you might think. That, that horizon seems off in a distance, but it's closer than you think. Paul articulates it this way in 2 Corinthians when he says, For this light, we read this earlier in the, in the, in the, the service, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. See the, 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 the balance of those two things. This, this is momentary. But the glory to be revealed is eternal. In comparison, this is, this is no time. Nothing. Maybe this is cold comfort for you. The grief and pain are so great and so overwhelming, you feel like the psalmist in Psalm 42 when he says, My tears 
have been my food day and night. While they say to me, that is his enemies, all day long, where is your God? Maybe you find yourself there. And a little further in the same psalm, in Psalm 42, he describes the sorrows and grief as uh, this great billows. He says, deep calls to deep, the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. There's nothing short temporary about those feelings. Yet even in the midst of the darkness and dread of our grief and pain, I think we can take hold of that sure hope. Again, in Psalm 42, he cries out, all, as I've already described, and at the very end, he says these words, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He's talking to himself. He says, hope in God. And then he turns and he says, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's that horizon. It's recognizing even in the depths of despair that he can tell himself, I will yet praise him. This is faith. They are the clinging to a reality that is not yet tangible and visible, but are nevertheless true. That's faith. Peter says, for a little while. Paul says, a light momentary affliction. And both of these men faced imprisonment, persecution, and they ultimately died for their faith, at least according to tradition. Peter was one who watched as his Lord and Savior was dragged away and executed. Those dark days while Jesus was in the tomb are hard for us to fathom, aren't they? And yet Peter here is saying, it's momentary. It's a short time. I don't know your stories. I know some of you a little bit. I don't know all of your pain, but I do know that in Christ, these sufferings are not the end of the story, nor the whole of the story. They are, for a time, a part of your story that God has deemed necessary. The text says, if necessary. We can read this as, well, if it's absolutely necessary, God will grieve us through trials. But in general, that's not what God does. God is a God who blesses. He gives you the good life, lots of material blessing. That's what God does, right? There's a false uh, religion built around this idea that if you just have enough faith, then God will bless you and you won't suffer. That all the problems of your life will go away and you'll gain material blessing in this life And if you don't have it, it's just a lack of faith. We call this the health and wealth gospel. Friends, nothing, nothing could be farther from the truth. The reality is the opposite. Jesus said to his disciples, what? Pick up your cross and follow me. And there's hardly a page in the New Testament, in in the New Testament that goes by without some hardship or trial befalling God's people. Or some exhortation on how to live in light of trials and persecution. This, this, you just read through the New Testament and this is 
Verse after verse, chapter after chapter, this comes up. We read some in the, in the text earlier in our service. The Old Testament is no different, right? People wandering in the wilderness, no food, facing enemies, facing no water, going, getting stuck in slavery for 400 years. God's promised people. It is probably better to read these words, the words that, if necessary, though now for a little, little while, as far as it is essential, you are grieved by various trials. In fact, for these particular Christians, they were likely already facing various local persecutions for forsaking their pagan lifestyle. They've come out of a pagan world and their friends are saying, what have you done? You've, you, you've rejected the way of life, the normal way of life in our community. And they probably were already facing some of the rejection of their community. And they were looking forward to, I think Peter could maybe see even uh, that sort of writing on the wall, if you will, the the emperor's uh, own persecutions that were to come in the near future. And this should bring us some comfort. Trials are not something God brings on his people willy-nilly or without purpose. They're not stuff that just happens to us. They're not on account of your lack of faith. Now, some trials do come on us because of our sin. God uses those as well. (laughs) But what we're thinking about particularly are not those things. Those those things are the griefs that we we bring upon ourselves, though God uses those and turns those around. Uh, We're thinking about those things that happen to us that are not our own faults. They're not of lack of faith. And I think when we, there is a danger for us when we think about trials and temptations and we think about all the, the pain and suffering in the world to think a couple things about God. We can either think God is not in control of the world and that things happen that he has no real power over. Right? Sort of the chaos of the world and God just kind of enters in where he can, does what he can, but he's really not all that powerful. The second thing is that God is either evil and and wishes pain on his people just for the sake of pain, or that he just doesn't care enough about us, and he allows things to happen without purpose. Peter says, if necessary, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only is the suffering and pain and sorrow that we feel measured, but it has a definite purpose. It doesn't just pile it on, but it gives us what is necessary. It has a purpose. Of course, I have to caveat here. We, as finite creatures as good intention as we may be, can't always see the particular purposes of God in any particular trial in somebody's life, right? And often, uh, they're just completely hidden from us and from the person. And in the midst of someone's pain and sorrow, it isn't the moment to give platitudes. It's the time to grieve with them. 
to come alongside them and weep with them. Jesus, at the tomb of Lazarus, he wept. Don't try to give explanations for someone's pain. You you don't know. But I do think it's good to ask ourselves as we go through a trial, how is this shaping my trust in God? How is God's goodness shown in this? And how is, am I seeing his preserving grace? Notice what Peter says. He says, your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. And, and as far as I know, gold is not something that you can perish. You can't throw it into a fire. Um, I was informed that I, I think if you have maybe a nuclear reaction, you might be able to somehow change the element itself. I, I don't know these things. But in general, gold is as an element. You can refine it. You can get rid of blemishes, but it can't be destroyed. And yet, yet Peter here says, oh, gold, though it's destroyed, perishes in fire. What is he getting at? I mean, he wouldn't have been able to personally destroy gold. What does he mean when he says that? Well, in Second Peter, he talks about the coming of the day of the Lord. When everything will be wiped away, there'll be nothing left. The elements themselves will be melted down. And he's saying, even the very foundations of the earth will be gone, but what will remain is your faith. Think about the preciousness of your faith for just a moment and how significant it is. That, as it's purified, it is greater than the most precious of elements in this world. Because it's born of heaven. Through the crucible of trial, a trial hot enough that anything that is not faith will be destroyed, your faith comes out more pure, more precious. Lewis observed something remarkable about this process. Uh, We might think of the trial as a harsh way for our faith to be honed, but I think it is more about our faith being revealed. Listen to what Lewis says in Grief Observed. God has not been trying an an experiment on my faith or on my love in order to find out their quality. He already knew it. It was I who did it. Oh, what a, what a, Lewis always has a way of talking, right? What God is doing is he wants to bring out the work that he has done in you. And he wants to show it off. He wants to slough off all the other stuff, the stuff that is not of faith. And he wants to come out and say, look what I've done in you. Look what I've created, this beautiful thing. In the midst of trial, I think we struggle to see this, don't we? We often can look back in retrospect And only then begin to see God's purposes of refining and revealing our faith. I've used Corey Ten Boom's testimony in the past. Um, I won't read a long quote like I did before, but here I want to compare how the most terrible of trials showed forth her faith, while a similar trial exposed the unbelief of another, Ellie Weissel. Um, Ellie Weissel in his book, Night, which was required reading for me when I was young. He reflected on his experience of the Holocaust, and he said this. 
Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Ellie Beisel, Holocaust survivor. Now listen to Corey. Corey Tenboom. Life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels, mutually impossible. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God grew daily better, truth upon truth, glory upon glory. The blacker the night grew around us, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Faith revealed. All the sloughed off dross and this beautiful faith revealed. For me, these testimonies, and they're manifold throughout history, in the lives of many Christians, show the reality of that living hope that we discussed last week, of faith tested and tried and purified and revealed. Yet you may be saying, Rob, if you lived what I've lived, you would not have such a faith. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is this. There is a greater horizon of hope than your present circumstances. There is a Savior who wept tears of blood at Gethsemane, who was beaten, stripped, mocked, who hung on a cross, and upon whom the wrath of God for you was poured out. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. The Lord of glory suffered and died that you might live. And as followers of Jesus, he calls us to walk in those footsteps. Into the valley of the shadow of death, that his glory in our faith might be revealed. And this is the other aspect of this good grief that I want to look at. Our grief-tested faith brings glory to God. The text says... So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is some discussion among the commentators as to whether or not the glory, honor, and praise here refer to the one who has faith, they receive glory and honor and praise, or that the glory and honor and praise goes to God. The the, the language is somewhat indifferent. You could point to to it either way. Um, And I I think it's a false dichotomy. Indeed, there is a glory for us, a praise for us to be revealed. This is how Peter opened the chapter. It's that imperishable, undefiled salvation ready to be revealed, kept in heaven for us. Peter, at the end of the letter, will talk about the unfading crown of glory that faithful servants will receive. Paul talks about a joy and a crown that belongs to him. 
James describes the crown of life that the one who is faithful receives, which God promises. This is, this is the nature of the Christian faith. There is suffering and there is glory. There is the way of cross. This is what Jesus himself went through, right? He, he went to the cross only to be glorified, Philippians 2. So as our faith is being tested, we can find hope in the future glory that belongs to us. What an amazing truth. But here's the key. Our glory is not our own. Just as our faith itself is a gift from God, as Ephesians 2 tells us. So when we withstand the fire and trials of this life, our faith is revealed as heaven-born. And isn't that the only explanation? After all, who of us could have withstood the horrors of Ravensbrook and come out singing the praises of God like Corey Tenboom? It is only heaven-born. All of us would be like Ellie Weissel, apart from God's grace. Isn't it true? We would all curse God if it wasn't for the heaven-born nature of our faith. Apart from the powerful, all-preserving grace of God, not one of us would sing God's praises in the midst of trial. Job, in his way, was tempted after he lost everything by his wife to curse God and die. Lost everything. Yet he refused. He said these words of faith. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, this is only possible through the powerful, preserving grace of God. And so our glory is really a shared glory. A derivative glory, a residual glory of the glory of God. All honor and praise and glory are from him and to him. So it is at the end of our days when we are gathered round the throne of our Savior and maybe we have our crowns, what do we do? We cast them down at the feet of Jesus. That's what we do. Friends, we will be glorified as we bask in the glory of our Savior. This brings me to where I want to conclude. As we consider what it means that our grief is good, that it is necessary for the purification of our faith and brings glory to God, I want us to see that we can't help, even in the darkest of trials, we can't help but rejoice and declare our love for him. Peter exalts in these elect exiles living in the far corner of the Roman Empire, says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, even as you're about to face trials and persecution, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Uh, Tim Keller in his book on marriage, The Meaning of Marriage, talks about romance being like a river. Uh, If you've read the book, you'll remember the illustration. It has stuck with me. Um, But it's more than an illustration of romance. But he he describes a sort of young romance uh, as the headwaters of a great river. Rushing torrents down waterfalls and cascades and cataracts and beautiful kind of loud. If you've ever been around waterfalls and stuff, it's just plain loud. It's bubbling. It's bursting forth. Young love, right? Young love. What's more powerful? 
the river there or the quiet, serene, deep Mississippi as it's about to go into the sea? One doesn't look like much, right? You look on it, it's flat, it's calm. And while that, that refers obviously to romance and the kind of, it was trying to draw an illustration of, you know, as you grow old in your, your, your marriage with your wife, the, the romance may not be bubbling up quite the same way, but the love is deep, right? Well, take this as an expression of, of the nature of Christian joy. Isn't that what it's like? It's often times not that loud, rejoicing, happy, clappy kind of thing that happens. Sometimes it's great, we get excited. But more often than not, it's that joy mixed with sorrow. And isn't, isn't that how it is? When we're really, really sad, when we're in the depths of despair, but we have hope in Christ, we can, we can find joy and happiness, even, even smiling, even laughing over a small joke. Even finding little bits of hope to cling to that we, we find a deep joy even as we weep and we cry in our grief. And isn't it the opposite true? Even in our greatest happiness, don't we shed tears? The complexity and pain of the world along with the hope of glory mixed together. I remember back in December of 2012, uh, you all were here. Well, not all of you, but many of you were here in Connecticut. And I was in Pittsburgh, and I heard a tragedy. <laughs> um, Seth isn't here, but he was intimately acquainted with the tragedy. He was involved in the aftermath of it. But um, the, the shooting of all those young children in Newtown. And I remember because I was tasked by my pastor, who's here right now. Just want to shout out. To preach on Christmas Eve. What is, the, what is the thing that we all sing on Christmas? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And, and I, was, I was devastated by the grief that was experienced in my home state of Connecticut. And the loss that they were experiencing. And the, the, the tragic pain of it. And I thought, how can I preach about joy in the midst of this tragic event? And there's, this is just one among the many tragic events that have that have been before then, then, and since. We've had one after another after another in this, in this nation. It seems like every other month or something tragic happens. How do we have joy in the midst of a world broken by all this tragedy and sorrow and grief, personal and external, whatever it is? How do we, how do we have joy? got to go back to the first part of first peter we fix our eyes on jesus we have that horizon of hope that the affliction and pain and sorrow and grief that we experience every day every week of this life is not forever the faith wrought in us by god gives us joy in the midst of trial and friends it is to the praise of god that he is coming again that he is going to restore and renew, that he is going to wipe away every tear, that he is going to reveal a world without trial or struggle or pain or sorrow. Friends, these momentary afflictions do not compare to the eternal weight of glory yet to come. And that's our vision. That's our hope. It's what sets us apart from the world. 
And what gives others as they look on us and they see us struggle with the pain and sorrow of this world in authentic, real ways as we grieve. But we don't grieve as those without hope. We offer something. This is good grief. Because through it, God is bringing us home to himself. And so we love him. And we rejoice with a joy that is often inexpressible, but is full of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.